This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. The science is changing constantly. As a population, we're so used to having protocols and having answers for a particular disease. We have to now embrace medicine and treatment of patients in a fashion that is much more nimble, where you don't have all of the answers up front. Hello, and welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I am your host, Kelly Richard. And today we have Vizian's Azra Balim, PharmD, MBA, and Associate Vice President, Pharmacy, Sourcing, and Program Services, back with us to share her deep knowledge on the moving target that is COVID-19. Understanding virus behavior and vaccines is key to strategizing through this pandemic. Welcome back, Azra. Thank you for having me, Kelly. Most of our content over the last couple of months has really focused on COVID-19 recovery and opening back up. Then along came Delta variant. I think the conversation both in the media and that we're having with health systems has to a degree changed a little bit. Can you just start by explaining the major differences between the original version of COVID and the variants that caused the first couple of surges versus the Delta variant, which is responsible for the current surge in cases in hospitalizations? Sure, absolutely. The original COVID-19 vaccine that started back in March of 2020 here was a very potent and transmissible virus to begin with. Like all viruses, it mutates over time. And it's really important for people to know that in many cases, those mutations are what we would call garbage mutations that don't have a substantial impact on the potency of the actual virus itself or the disease severity. What has happened here with the coronavirus is some of these mutations have actually impacted how this disease progresses. Some of the more common variants that were in the news early on were surfacing in the United Kingdom. And this particular mutation changed the physical structure on a particular part of the spike protein, which made it easier to stick. If you were to inhale droplets, chances are it was going to stick to you much more readily than the original coronavirus The next variant that was of concern originally surfaced in South Africa. This one already contained the mutation that we saw in the UK variant, but it also contained two additional mutations. One of them was actually physically changing the structural binding site on the spike protein where your antibodies would normally bind and take it on a different molecular structure. It was a cause for concern and still is because it makes it a little bit more difficult for your body's antibodies to bind to the virus and neutralize it. Thank you. That's really helpful. When we think about the Delta variant, what does that look like? The Delta variant has three subtypes underneath it. You may not hear about those subtypes very often, in particular in the lay press, but there are some small nuances that are different between those subtypes. When we're talking about the Delta variant, the parts that are really concerning is that it contains that large mutation that we saw in the UK variant, and it also has a whole host of other mutations that make it much more potent, much more sticky and basically increases its affinity for certain receptors in your body. These additional mutations all have occurred on the spike protein. The combination of all of these mutations together have made this particular strain of the coronavirus much more ready to attach to what's known as your ACE2 receptors in your body. 
ACE2 receptors are located in particularly in the kidney and heart tissue. And because these mutations have made the coronavirus much more readily able to bind to those sites, when you do come in contact with it, coming in through your nasal passages or your mouth or where you're breathing it in, it's much more readily able to bind to those receptors and ultimately to those organs in your body. The biggest difference is the original coronavirus would come in contact with it, right? Through the air, it'll come in through your nose. And as the virus continues to replicate, it'll eventually invade and infect the other parts of your body and in your organs. This one is much more impactful onto those organs earlier If you are somebody who is not vaccinated and you come in contact with somebody who has COVID-19 Delta variant, if you were to inhale that within those 10 minutes, the chances are it's much more readily attached to other parts of your body quickly. And this is why the Delta variant is actually so much more deadly than previous variants. Patients don't have what we would call that longer incubation time before they start showing potentially organ failure. We can have patients who show up who only had the Delta variant for five or seven days and might already be showing mild signs of acute renal failure. That's partially due because the coronavirus was already attaching itself to organ tissue earlier on than it would have with the original coronavirus. Ozra, that's really helpful in understanding what health systems might be experiencing. From your experience, are hospitals getting patients that are sicker? I know that we've started to see some record hospitalizations in places like Florida, Texas, maybe Louisiana. Do we think that we're going to see sicker patients that are in the hospital longer? Do we expect to see more deaths? We are seeing patient surges in a lot of those states and also other pockets throughout the country. When we're having that conversation, it's really important to distinguish the difference between somebody who is vaccinated versus not vaccinated. Let's take the unvaccinated group first. If you are not vaccinated, you will most likely progress to that severe state more quickly because this particular Delta variant is stronger, is stickier. It has a higher affinity for those receptors on your organs. And so you might present to the hospital sooner than you would have with the original coronavirus strain. If you are somebody who is vaccinated and you have an adequate immune response, then the amount of time will still be delayed. You may not show any symptoms at all. You may have mild symptoms, but if it does progress, you will end up in the hospital and need treatment. Ordinarily, you would see more difficulty for those patients when they're hospitalized. The upside today, as opposed to 18 months ago, is that our physicians, our pharmacists, our nurses, our administrators, all of the folks in our hospitals are much better equipped with knowledge and experience and a whole new arsenal of pharmaceuticals that can help treat patients who have COVID. That way, the survival rate is still better than what it was 18 months ago. Obviously, hearing about breakthrough cases is alarming. What is the actual risk of having a breakthrough case and how common is that? First and foremost, it's really important for everyone to understand that there is no vaccine that will be 100% effective. The amount of breakthrough cases varies considerably from person to person based upon their own body chemistry, their own immune response. 
than other diseases that they might have. If you are a patient who has an autoimmune disorder, you are an organ transplant patient, or you've had cancer or rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, those types of medications and just generally having those diseases has given you a blunted immune response. There's a study that was published out of Johns Hopkins done specifically on patients who had had organ transplant and less than 30% of the patients actually had an antibody response, even though they were fully immunized. I do think that's important to highlight here for folks to know because it may not be you, but it may be somebody in your household. It may be your neighbor, someone that you care about. It may be someone within your close friend circle or your extended family. Regardless of having the vaccine, their ability to fight off the virus is still compromised. So it's incredibly important that there's still precautions in place to protect those individuals. If you have been fully vaccinated, the amount of breakthrough infections that we're seeing originally were probably somewhere between the order of 5 to 8%. Now, that was with the original coronavirus. We are seeing more breakthrough infections with the Delta variant. Some of the efficacy or the increase in the breakthrough cases is occurring because of two things. Number one, folks may not be taking any precautions whatsoever. They could be fully vaccinated, but are standing no more than six inches apart from another 20 people. They're increasing the chances and the probability to get this Delta strain into their nasal cavity and basically into their body. The other reason we're seeing more breakthrough cases is that we know from our clinical trial data that participants will have a very good antibody immune response for the first six months after they are fully vaccinated. Beyond that point, some individuals may continue to have a really good response, but for some reason, there are some individuals out there whose antibody levels start to decline and their immune system doesn't have a response that is adequate enough to fight it off. For some people, when they first hear that, they might be a little alarmed. But honestly, this is no different than when we think about the flu vaccine. So this falls very similar into that pattern when we're talking about respiratory illnesses. When we think through that, and there's been lots of talk of boosters, is there a test or any way of knowing whether you still have the re immune response? You can go and have a blood test to see if you have an antibody response. The challenge with that is that none of the pharmaceutical manufacturers who make the vaccine have been able to correlate a quantity of how much antibodies you need in order to effectively fight off the virus itself. Not having that piece of information is what will make that correlation between the two difficult. The upside is for those people who might have an autoimmune disorder or they're taking medications that may suppress their immune system, having the antibody test is helpful in the sense that your doctor may be able to figure out whether or not you're mounting any immune response after getting the vaccines. Unfortunately, we don't have enough scientific data to actually draw those conclusions. When we're taking it back to a health system perspective and they're looking at the whole population, are there data elements other than vaccine rates that can really tell us how sick are people getting and how likely are you to see them showing up in your hospitals? The CDC does have a tracker on their website that shows the number of breakthrough infections. Originally, they were tracking all breakthrough infections, whether or not the patient showed symptoms. In the middle of May, the CDC changed their definition and is now only tracking breakthrough infections for patients who are presenting with moderate to severe symptoms. 
They also have on the CDC website the prevalence of each one of these variant strains that we discussed, whether it's Delta, Alpha, Gamma, whatever you want to call them. It'll have columns on there and it'll list by state what percent they're seeing of each one of the variants across each state. So if you're interested to know in a particular geographic area, what is the prevalence of the Delta variant over other variants, you can see what that percentage is looking like and you can track whether or not it's growing or whether it's decreasing. We're seeing, obviously, Delta as being a pretty significant threat right now. But there are other variants that I guess are coming down the pike. I've heard Lambda as being one that seems to be of concern. When you're looking at the different variants that are starting to emerge, which ones pose the greatest threat to COVID-19 recovery and what is different about them and how they behave? You wanted to talk about the Lambda variant. That would probably be the next variant of concern that we have that was first reported in Peru during late 2020. And it's right now the most viable candidate for the most prominent strain in South America. It's what's driving the infections in Argentina. Colombia, Ecuador, and Chile. Leading epidemiologists are already concerned that some of these structural changes will lower the vaccine efficacy. If the vaccine efficacy decreases, we're going to see more breakthrough infections. What we don't know is when we see those breakthrough infections, how well will those vaccines protect against the progression of COVID in those individuals to moderate and severe? How many more patients are we potentially going to see in the ICU, even though they're fully vaccinated, because they've come in contact with the Lambda variant? We're not trying to create fear here, but I think it's important that what we're calling today COVID-19 as a virus will continue to mutate. And some of these mutations may be completely insignificant, but some of these mutations can eventually make it where some of our current therapies will need to be retooled to stay one step more ahead of the game. Obviously, the mRNA vaccines have dominated the conversation, but there are other vaccines in the pipeline that could be even more effective. Tell us a little bit about what the promising vaccines are that are being studied. The pipeline of vaccines and also COVID-19 treatments is very encouraging. We have a vaccine that is manufactured by Novavax. They've published their phase three clinical trial results and they've showed a 96.4% efficacy against the original coronavirus and 90% efficacy against the alpha variant. These results were published last month in the New England Journal of Medicine. So we're very anxious to see this particular vaccine come to market because the type of technology that is used for this development is the same technology that we use to develop the flu vaccine. It's something that people are very familiar with. And the clinical trial data so far is showing that participants in the study had significantly less side effects than what we saw in the trials for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. That's really encouraging because we have folks who may be hesitant right now to get the vaccine because they've heard about some of the potential side effects after the second dose, and they're a bit concerned about that. But we're already seeing from the trial results from Novavax that those participants have significantly less fever and chills and fatigue. This vaccine will still require two doses. We do not have a timeline yet on when Novavax will file with the FDA for their emergency use authorization, but we are hoping that that vaccine will be available here in the U.S. by the fourth quarter of this year. 
this vaccine doesn't require the same cold chain as the mRNA vaccines, correct? Not just in the U.S., but in the rest of the world where vaccines have been really difficult from a logistical perspective, this can help get a larger portion of the population of the world vaccinated so that these variants don't have as much opportunity to develop. That's a great point. This vaccine is only requiring refrigeration. So that does make it easier from a supply chain and a cold chain perspective. And you touched upon a really good point there, which is the opportunity for this virus to continue mutating and for more variants to emerge is highly dependent upon the entire vaccination for the world. Because this is a global pandemic, the opportunity that we have to vaccinate as many people possible around the world is what will ultimately help in the fight against the coronavirus. From a health system perspective, What do you think you would be paying attention to as someone running hospitals for the next six to 18 months? What is the focus for keeping the population that you serve as healthy as possible? Let's just say two years ago, I don't think any one of us planned for a pandemic, operationally speaking. Healthcare systems and hospitals have learned quite a bit in these past 18 months. We've seen the surges come and we've seen them kind of level off a bit, which have given our healthcare workers a much needed reprieve and then only to have surges come back. At this point, many of our hospitals are much more adept at being able to adapt to those changing environments. And so they have now protocols and procedures in place where perhaps they didn't exist before. What we're seeing with the latest surge, whether it's in Florida or Louisiana or California, that the healthcare systems are able to respond in a much quicker fashion. That's really impacted patient care in a positive manner. Yeah, that's a great point. It makes me realize how much nuance and how complicated this is. I'm wondering if there's a role for health systems in communicating to their populations, not only what the science is in really simplistic terms, but also asking them to be agile and understand that the science is changing constantly. You hit the nail on the head there when you said the science is changing constantly. As a population, we're so used to having protocols and having answers for a particular disease. If somebody comes in with a heart attack, we know what we're going to do. We know what we can do. We know what's worked. We have data. We have evidence to support it. That's one of the challenges, not just for healthcare professionals, but also for the general population to come to grips with. We have to now embrace medicine and treatment of patients in a fashion that is much more nimble, where you don't have all of the answers up front, but you have a sick patient in front of you today. And now we need to start thinking differently in more creative and innovative ways. And that is a new mindset for hospitals and healthcare systems to say, I may not know everything about this particular variant and how it's going to respond, but I need to take the things that I've learned in the past 18 months and make some educated extrapolations on how I'm going to move forward with this new case that's presented in front of me. Absolutely. It really does connect to so much of the other work and research that we've done where we're thinking about health systems as taking on a public health role. They're the educator, they're the caretaker, and they're also that acute care provider when you really need it. Azra, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your knowledge. This has been another episode of SG2 Perspectives. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review. We'd love to hear from you please connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter at SG2 Healthcare 
You can also reach us via email at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Reach out and let us know what healthcare trends are most important to you. Please also listen and subscribe to our colleague, Dr. Tom Villanueva's Modern Practice Podcast on Vizian's Medical Leadership Channel. Tom discusses key healthcare trends through the clinical leadership lens. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.